The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Acts chapter 5 and verse 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you have it, say amen. Amen. The word of God says this, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out to be buried. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. And not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold this land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord, and I pray you receive it as such. You may be seated. We are currently in a series entitled Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. We're considering... What the early church, the first century Christians, really valued. And our conviction is, is that those spiritual disciplines that they had need to be centric to our church as well. One of the, the marks of a healthy church that we started looking at last week is actually the mark of holiness. And there's some misunderstanding around the word holiness. It simply means to be set apart. And the early church was incredibly set apart from the world. You read through Acts and you read through the epistles and this is obvious. They were set apart from the world and set apart unto the Lord. And the mandate to be set apart, to be holy, has not changed. How many understand that? There are two aspects to holiness. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this first part of holiness is what we might call positional holiness. Meaning that positionally we are made holy by virtue of our relationship with Jesus. So he has made us a holy nation. All right, that's why often in the epistles we're referred to as saints. So if you are sitting next to a believer right now, you're sitting next to a saint. Some of you don't look convinced. I didn't say they always acted like it, all right? But we are positionally saints. Now, there's a second part, though, of holiness. 
And that we might refer to as practical holiness. So God positionally has made us holy. And then here it is. He has called us to walk in that holiness. This is very clear. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves. Also watch this. In your behavior. So his point is this. Christ has made you holy. God has made you holy in Christ. Now act like it. Walk this holy life out. Amen? So to walk in holiness simply means that we're walking in accordance with the word of God. Which again is very countercultural. Because God has given us his spirit. Here's the really neat thing. Not only has God called us to walk in holiness, but friends, he's empowered us to be able to carry that out. He's given us the power by his spirit. He's sanctifying us by his spirit so we can actually carry this mandate out. Now, very important to say that holiness is not just about what we don't do, or in other words, what we refrain from, but it's actually also about what we do. So when you become a Christian, you should refrain from sex outside of marriage. You should refrain from drunkenness. You shouldn't lie, cheat, steal, etc. You should not do those things. But if that is where you stop, then all you have is moralism. And moralism and Christianity are not the same things. So what we do is just as important as what we refrain from. We need to be a people of prayer. A people who share the gospel, a people who give charitably, a people who forgive, a people who are generous, a people who are saturated with God's word, so on and so forth. Now, we all know this call to be holy, right? Most of us in here have been Christians quite a while, and we know that we are called to walk in obedience to the Lord, to walk in holiness. Yet, we this morning, every one of us are quite aware that we often miss the mark, do we not? Raise your hand if I'm talking to you. All right, a little confession here this morning. We all have shortcomings. Matter of fact, 1 John says that if we say we have no sin, he's writing to believers, the truth is actually not in us if we say we have no sin. So we know that we sin. We should not be living in, as believers in habitual sin, but we do sin. Now, because we know the call to be holy, and we also know that we do in fact stumble, sin, there is this temptation to take on this kind of spiritual pretentiousness. To actually look more spiritual than we really are. And the Bible has a word for this, it's called hypocrisy. Now, I grew up in a, in a large Southern Baptist church, really great church, but I felt like I was the only one with issues. Because there was this kind of spiritual pretentiousness there. There's this kind of facade right among the people of God. How many know? Am I telling the truth? We know how to be churchy. We know how to sound like we have it all together. And so often we fall into this sin called hypocrisy. Do you know that hypocrisy is one of the biggest turnoffs amongst the people of God to unbelievers? Statistically, this is, I believe, the top reason Unbelievers say they want nothing to do with our faith because we are hypocrites. 
By the way, it's not just the secular world that has an issue with our hypocrisy. How many know that God himself has a pretty big issue with hypocrisy? We see this today in Acts chapter 5. So my aim today is biblically to push us towards this mark of holiness individually and as a church and move us away from hypocrisy. The good news is this. We're not the first generation to struggle with this. I mean, the church is just getting started. It's booming, as a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 4. And now in Acts chapter 5, already we have hypocrisy. Now, ancient writers would often compare positive and negative examples in their writings. And this is exactly what Luke, the writer of Acts, does here. He contrasts in the end of chapter 4, a man by the name of Barnabas, who is a great example of holiness. We talked about that last week. He contrasts him with Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. And this couple is an example of hypocrisy. So the Bible is encouraging us, every one of us, to imitate Barnabas. To be people of holiness. Not people like Ananias and Sapphira. Or not to walk in hypocrisy. So the title of the message very simply is Pursue Holiness, Not Hypocrisy. Are you with me this morning? So I want us to understand through this text what hypocrisy is, why it's a big deal, and how we can guard against it. I'm going to simply look at three points about Ananias and Sapphira as I unpack the text. Number one, who they were. Number two, what they did. And number three, why it mattered. Pretty simple, amen? Who were Ananias and Sapphira? We actually know very little about them. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details, but I do want to draw your attention to two points of their life, namely their wealth and their faith. Dr. Craig Keener, great commentator, points out that Ananias, reflecting the uh, Hebrew name Hananiah, is actually a very common name. But interestingly, Sapphira in the first century here was very rare. It was, it was not a common name. And it was saved, it seems, especially for very well-to-do women. Because they had land to sell and because of this name, it is really thought by theologians that this was a very wealthy couple. The man would have married somebody in his own social class. This family had money, all right? This was a couple who had some money. They were well-to-do. Now, there, I say this because their wealth, no doubt, was part of their downfall. The Bible is replete with warnings about money, especially the love of it. Very familiar text. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. First Timothy six and chapters, uh, verse six. The Apostle Paul, writing Timothy, says this: "But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world." But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Oh, how America needs this message. But those who desire to be rich, watch this, they fall into temptation. And how many Christians today are praying that they would win the lottery? Come on, somebody. You know what they're praying for? That they would fall into temptation and be pierced with many pains. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why would you pray for that? 
For the love of money is the root of all kind of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many pains. Now there is a great danger in a desire to be rich. But you know, it goes beyond that. Matthew 19, very interesting passage. A man comes to Jesus, remember the story, wanting eternal life? Jesus, what do I have to do? Like I'm trying to keep the law and... And Jesus, what's he say to this man? He says, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Give the proceeds away. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And now Jesus is not suggesting that you can buy your way to heaven. But Jesus knows that this man has a lot of money and a lot of possessions. And that is what has his heart. And how many know the Bible says you cannot have two masters? So... Jesus says, sell it all. And here's what's so interesting. The man who wanted eternal life, the Bible says he just walked away sad, despondent. How tragic. He so treasures his possessions that he's willing to lay down eternal life to hold on to his earthly treasures. So you go down to Matthew 19 there and Jesus says to his disciples, verse 23, truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a person, a rich person, enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And Jesus said, With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. So with riches, we know there can come this false sense of security, right? The rich get so caught up in luxury and comfort and they fail to sense their need for God. So there's always this temptation with the rich to treasure earthly wealth above Christ. And I say that this morning because I'm looking at a bunch of rich folk today. Now I see you looking around going like, is he talking to me? But do you know that like poverty is relative, right? Being rich is relative. If you make $24,000 a year and you are a family of four, that's right at the uh, poverty line, right, in America. If you make $24,000 a year, you are in the top 2.24% of the world's richest people. Friends, we are a rich people. Do you think that could be why that we have such a spiritual apathy in our country today? I mean, this is the story of Israel over and over. God would prosper them, and then they would think, man, we don't need the Lord anymore. They start serving idols and, and worshiping false gods and doing their own thing and rebelling over and over and over. That's their story, and I don't think it's any different with us. I mean, this country used to love the Lord by and large, but now that He's blessed us immensely, what's the message today? We don't need the Lord anymore. That's what... The secular world in our country is saying today, we don't need it. It's a fearful thing to be as comfortable as we are as a nation. So Ananias and Sapphira were arguably wealthy, and this wealth certainly contributed to their downfall. Number two, I just want to mention briefly their faith. The question I struggled with as I've read this through the years, I've kind of gone back and forth, but I really believe that Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. The Bible doesn't explicitly say it, so it's not a hill that I'm willing to die on. But let me just give you some reasons why I believe this. Number one, Acts 4.32 says that the number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And it seems that Ananias and Sapphira were included in this. They were part of the real church. Okay? 
Number two, it seems that they had a relationship or at least conversation with the Holy Spirit. They certainly grieved Him, but it seems that they are that they at least had this relationship with the Spirit. Peter said, Ananias, why Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, third reason here, true believers cannot, I don't believe, be, I don't believe they can be possessed. Okay, I don't see an example in Scripture where, where a believer is possessed. But, how many of believers can be influenced by Satan? That's why daily, friends, we have got to put on the spiritual armor that God has given us. We've got to be a people who resist the enemy, as 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He's talking to believers. You're, the enemy is walking around looking for someone to devour. And then he says, resist him, firm in your faith. So just because you see Ananias and Sapphira being influenced by the devil, don't assume that they're not Christians. Because Peter says this very thing will happen, and Ananias and Sapphira should have resisted him, but instead they listened to him. And oh, how I see this in ministry over and over again. True believers can't be demon-possessed, but they can certainly be influenced by Satan. So all of this to say... That they're real believers. Now, death can be a form of divine discipline for a believer. You go to 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is talking about communion. He says, some of you talking to believers again. Some of you have taken this in an unworthy manner. So some of you are sick, and some of you have even died because of it. So death can be a form of divine judgment. Now, I point this out because... There is this hyper-grace movement going around that says, listen, come to Jesus, live how you want. He understands. He, he's okay with it. You're covered. And they essentially use grace as a license to sin. And friends, that is a misuse of grace. This story tells us that God does not wink at sin. If you're a believer here and you're walking in sin, oh, I encourage you, I implore you, repent today. He doesn't wink at sin even in the church. Peter, we learned um, from our last series that he says that judgment must begin in the household of God. So Ananias and Sapphira were arguably wealthy Christians. What then did they do? Well, to begin with, they sold a piece of property and they gave all the proceeds, or they gave proceeds, some proceeds, to the apostles to distribute amongst the needy within the church. Now, this sounds like a good thing, right? And these are generous people. Sell their land, give some of the proceeds to the church. And I want you to remember something today that God doesn't just see our actions, but He sees our motives. That's why in Matthew chapter 6, He writes he's, that Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, when they love to be praised by others. Ananias and Sapphira think about this. They no doubt knew about Barnabas who sold a field, Acts 4 tells us, and brought all the money and laid it down at the apostles' feet. Now Barnabas' real name was Joseph and the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas, which means encourager. So I want you to picture this. Ananias and Sapphira 
They see Barnabas and they see the accolades that are coming his way. Man, he even got a cool nickname by the apostles themselves. And they want that type of attention. Have you ever seen that kind of jealousy in the church? Man, I want that recognition. And so they no doubt said, hey, let's try to get that same attention for ourselves. We'll sell the land and we'll give some of the proceeds. Now, this was doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And it cost them their lives. God is very concerned with motives. That's why I would say to you, if, if your heart is not in giving in the offering, don't give. Because to do so would be spiritual suicide. Could be spiritual suicide. We see that right here. He wants us to give New Testament Christians joyfully, cheerfully. So if you can't give in that way today, get on your face before the Lord and say, Hey, divorce me from the love of money so that I can give cheerfully in the next offering. Now this couple saw how people responded to Barnabas and they wanted the applause of men. They wanted that same respect. So they were, here it is, they were dishonest. Verse 2, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Now, there's actually nothing wrong with keeping back some of the proceeds. Except that they tried to make the church believe that they did what Barnabas did and gave it all. In other words, look how spiritual we are. But they didn't do what they said they were going to do. So verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? This couple being influenced by Satan lies to the people. They lie to the Holy Spirit and they say, hey, we sold this land, we gave it all, when in fact they kept some back for themselves. The sad truth here is that they had zero obligation to sell the land at all, nor were they under obligation to give once they gave all the proceeds to the church. Peter makes this clear, crystal clear in verse 4. While it remained unsold, he says to Ananias, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, nobody held your hand behind your back and said, give it all. Why is it that you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. By the way, let me just give you a little doctrine here. You know, we believe in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So remember, he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in the next verse, he says, you've lied to God, meaning the Holy Spirit is part of that Godhead. Amen? And understand that when we lie to one another, we actually are lying to the Lord as well. We're disingenuous with Him. And it's a big deal. The lie is unnecessary. But there's an even deeper problem than the lie. It's that they are prideful, Ananias and Sapphira. They want the church, they want people to think well of them. And how many of us have fallen into this temptation? So they put on a facade, and this is called biblically again hypocrisy. And it's rampant in the church. A Christian, watch this, who stumbles or sins is not necessarily a hypocrite. The hypocrite is the one who goes to the extreme lengths to hide who they really are. To hide their sins, to hide their imperfections, to put on this 
facade and the church must have been devastated to find out that Ananias and Sapphira are deceiving them. Before we judge them too quickly, let me say that this is a huge temptation for every one of us because we like people to think well of us, do we not? And again, we have learned to be churchy. And you've got to be careful when you have talent. I said this first service, I'll say it again. That when, when you have, a, for instance, a praise team who comes up here as, as talented as our praise team is, the temptation is this. I'm good enough to make people think that I'm spiritual. I know how to, I know how to over-spiritualize my voice. And I, I know how to, to talk this, this talk. And I, I know how to say all the right things that will even maybe get a little tear to drip down from the congregant's eye, right? And so the, the idea is this, there's this temptation to say, oh, I can live however I want and I can depend on my talent on Sunday morning, put on this facade and people will buy it and they'll applaud me. And I don't actually have to be spiritual at all. But that's not what we're called to do. Actually, the prayer of the worship team, by the way, and the prayer of the preacher ought to be, Lord, hide me behind the cross. Don't let me be seen at all. Because it's not her Tiffany praying a prayer like this this morning. It was beautiful. Lord, it's not about us. But when you're as good as these singers are, and you hear constantly how great you are as a worship team, or any other ministry, is it not easy to put on the facade and say, oh, I'll just float in this, on this praise for a while and let your spiritual life go? And we have, we've had over the years people, we've probably all been that person who has put on the facade and convinced people in the pews around us that we are more spiritual than we actually are. We're, we have deeper prayer lives and greater spirituality than we really do. We've got to guard from this. I would encourage you, if you can't worship at home, don't worship on this platform. If you don't pray at home, don't be the one to stand up and let others be impressed by your spiritual vocabulary by praying on a Wednesday night. Listen, what you do in private, you can do in public. That's the point. Don't, don't, don't pray. Don't act spiritual to be seen by men. Let it be authentic. It's devastating when we find out in the church that someone is actually not who they say they are. When hypocrisy is revealed, it's devastating, is it not? My wife, Nikki, had surgery this past Thursday. Thank you so much for the calls and texts and meals and visits and all of that. She's recovering well this morning. But during her registration, they were asking her some questions. And it was like, you know, name, birthday, and who's your primary care doctor? And are you, you have any allergies? And they get to this question. This is 5 o'clock on, on Thursday morning. And uh, get to this question. Do you have any re religious preference? And she, she just looks at him and she goes, Nah. I looked at her. I said, you have fooled me all these years. Nikki, we're pastors. Yes, we are. I, I whispered to her, we're Christians. So she explained to me. She said, well, I just thought they were going to send a pastor up. And she said, she, she said, I, I just have you. I didn't think I needed anybody. I said, they're lying to send up some yogi now to, to minister to you. Sinner. She's getting ready to go into surgery. 
messing with God. I'm just saying. She clarified herself and we're okay now. Are we not all tempted to put on this facade? You know what hypocrisy does? It gives evidence that we treasure the love of people, the applause of people, image more than we treasure Christ. See, if, if you are content in receiving the applause of God, there's just no reason to be insecure about who you are. If you're walking with Him, you have no reason to put on a facade or to act more spiritual so you can get more praise from men. Why does this matter? I mean, God's judgment seems so severe. Does it not? I mean, Ananias and Sapphira both drop dead. That's severe. Verse 4, Peter asks, Why is it you, you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard. Then Peter has conversation with Sapphira. The same thing. She lies about what they gave. He prophesies her death. And boom, she dies. Now, this begs the question, why such a severe judgment? Because they're not the last hypocrites to ever sit in a pew. Is that true? Well, I think there's a few reasons why this judgment was so severe, or seems, at least to us, so severe. Number one, their hypocrisy threatened the unity of the early church. We saw in Acts 3 how Satan had tried to destroy the church from the outside. Remember, Peter and John, had, they were making their way up to the temple to pray, and they come across the lame man, 40 years old, lame from birth. They say, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He's healed. A crowd forms. They begin to testify about the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, they they uh, proclaim his resurrection, that the crucified Christ has now risen. And this kind of causes a stir within the temple. The temple guard comes. They arrest Peter along with the priest. Or the priest and the temple guard arrest Peter and John. They throw them into the, the jail. And then the next morning, Peter and John have to stand before the Sanhedrin where they're threatened not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. This is the same council that condemned, tried and condemned Jesus. Now they stand before, and, and, the, and the enemy is going, hey, listen, I'm going to stop the church by persecution. That's Satan's goal, right? But even the gates of hell cannot come against God's church. Amen? Amen. And so persecution, not only does it not stop the church growth, it actually propels it into more growth. So the church continued to grow. So that, you know what this devil did? Okay, I can't, I can't stop the church by coming at with an attack from the outside, so I'll just move within. And so he tempts Ananias and Sapphira, and the church's unity that Acts 4 talks about is at stake, and God will not have it. And I have tragically seen this through the years. I've never one time in any of the churches that I've served at least seen an attack from the outside. We've had attacks from the outside. I've never once seen them cause the church to, to split or to, or, or, or to decline. But I have seen time and time again folk on the inside who call themselves spirit-filled Christians because of their mouth, because they're listening to the spirit. And here's the thing, the devil always comes as an angel of light. They think they're hearing from the Lord, but they're hearing from the wrong spirit because they don't know the word of God. 
and they cause tension and turmoil in Christ's church. And it threatens the unity. And I'll just say, guard from hypocrisy. Guard from being used by the enemy in this way. He's after you. He's after me because he would love to make shipwreck of our faith. We've got to stand strong. So God wanted to protect the unity of the church. The second reason that this judgment is so severe, I believe, is because it serves as an example and a warning for the church. Verse 11, I get this from there. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You know what God is showing us? I take sin seriously. You better not mess with me. We've lost the reverence for God that we once had. We lost the fear of the Lord. The things that we allow to go on in church, the way that we talk about people, the way that we run our mouths, all, so many things, the gossip, the slander, the hypocrisy. We need to look back to this and remind us, God does, and be reminded that God does not play. He's serious about sin. So this judgment may seem severe, but it means it is intended to serve as a warning to Christ's church. Let me quickly close with some application here. Matter of fact, Zach, you can come to the keyboard, please. Our desire is that real life community church would be marked by holiness, not hypocrisy. I don't want to be known as a church full of a bunch of hypocrites. So how do we pursue holiness and guard from hypocrisy? How do we do it? How do we pursue holiness and how do we guard from hypocrisy? Number one, we've got to fight to be happy in God. I believe in Christian hedonism. I, I actually believe God wants us to be happy. But He wants us to be happy in Him. Yes. Not satisfied with the things of this world. Those things were never meant to satisfy our hearts. Now here's why this is important. When you are happy in God, when you treasure Christ above all things, you don't need a vice. You don't need sin because you are content in who Jesus is. He's more than enough. So fight to be happy with God if you want to pursue holiness and guard from hypocrisy. Number two, we've got to saturate ourselves with the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The reason we don't often see people walking in righteousness is because they simply do not know the Word of God. Saturate yourself with the Word of God. It produces holiness in you. Number three, be honest in your shortcomings. You've got to lay down the facade. Confess your sin. Let the church help you. So we've got to cultivate an atmosphere in which people can safely confess sin. Now, it's, it's not that we, we, we weaken sin. No, we can't do that. But we're not going to kick you here while you're down. We want you to walk in holiness and we're going to help you up and we're going to help you. We're going to exhort you daily. Lest your heart be hardened, as the word says, by the deceitfulness of sin. I was reading yesterday through the Anglican Church's Book of Common Prayer. And part of the liturgy from their daily prayer service is a general confession that is said, recited by the church. And it goes like this. Just imagine us doing this every Sunday morning. Here's a general confession by the congregation. 
Almighty and merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we've done those things which we ought not have done. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O merciful Father, for his sake, that we might hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. I just resonates with me. Because weekly we can come in here and say, hey, we've missed the mark somewhere. And God, we beseech you again for mercy. And we ask you, Lord, help us to walk in your ways this week, this day. So sometimes we fail in the modern church to talk about the struggle. So today I pray that each of you in here are real followers of Jesus. What keeps me up at night is that I have people within our church who are nominal Christians, name only. That won't save you. That won't get you to God. It won't, it won't bring you forgiveness. You need to truly cry out to God today. If that's you. You need to truly cry out to God today in faith and re repentant faith. Say, Lord, I want to follow you. Fill me with your spirit. Change me. Hypocrisy will kill you. Final thing I'll say, I just want to close with this poem. Short poem by Grenville Kleiser. He says this. You can fool the hapless public. You can be a subtle fraud. You can hide your little meanness, but you can't fool God. You can advertise your virtues. You can self-achievement laud. You can load yourself with riches, but you can't fool God. You can magnify your talent. You can hear the world applaud. You can boast yourself somebody, but you can't fool God. May we always remember He knows our hearts. May we serve Him with a clear conscience. May we walk in holiness. In obedience to his word. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.